Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here this morning. Thank you for worshiping the Lord with us. If you have a Bible, please open it to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 32. And as you're opening up your Bible, two uh, quick thoughts for you. The first thought is that this morning we're going to be getting into the topic of uh, Christian sexuality or human sexuality. And um, I know there's there's a lot in this passage. There are a lot of questions that are going to get kicked up uh, from studying this passage, and there's no way to answer all the questions I would like to answer in one uh, message. This is part of the reason why we're doing uh, the, the Fall Equip Conference on sexuality and gender. Uh, this is coming up here in just a couple of weeks. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to get equipped on such a big issue of human sexuality and gender. How do we think through these issues as Christians? There's, there are a lot of voices, and so this, this conference is designed to help us think through this question biblically. And uh, I wanted to mention that tomorrow the price is going to go up. Right now, if you sign up today, it's $35, which is a great deal for Friday and Saturday. And uh, tomorrow the price is going to go up uh, to $550. And so... I'm just joking, but it's going to go up to $45, so you should uh, sign up now. It's a wonderful thing to take your kids to. Also, uh, I wanted to share that uh, our culture will find much of what I shared this morning pretty offensive, and some of you here may be offended by some of the things that I'm going to share, but I just wanted to assure you uh, that all of us are going to be deeply offended by the time we get to Romans chapter 3. So this is the trajectory we are on. Paul is bringing everybody under the condemnation of the law, condemnation of sin, uh, that we might see our need for a savior. This is what Paul is doing. And so uh, if you're not offended this week, you probably will be next week. So everyone's going to get their turn. I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender as we work through the word of God. So at this time, I want to invite you to stand up and give your attention to the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 1, verses 25 through 32. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator, who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to their corrupt mind so they w- that they will do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word clarity of your word. We thank you that it's your word that you use to give us life, to transform us. Uh, Lord, we just acknowledge we are so quick uh, to worship other things. We are so prone to wander away from who you are, to wander away from your goodness, and I pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would give us, give us wisdom to understand how to apply these truths to our lives, give us faith to believe what you have to say. Uh, we, we don't want to just hear your word and leave here unchanged. And so help us to think clearly 
that we might trust you and obey you for your glory. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Romans chapter 1 is the most hated and helpful chapter in the Bible as it relates to our modern world. And it is hated and helpful for the same reason. In Romans chapter 1, we see the glory of God, the failure of humanity, and the reality of sexual sin. And sexual sin is the arrow of offense in the chapter. It is the reason there is so much hostility in the world towards Romans chapter 1. And this morning, I want to zero in on the reality of sexual sin. And so there are four truths for us this morning to consider. Truth number one is the source of sexual sin, the source of sexual sin. Now, before we get into the source of sexual sin, how should we think about sex in general as Christians? If we understand the scriptures, how should we think about sex? Well, I have two statements for you. First is that sex is a gift given by God to one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage for procreation, permanence, and pleasure. So we should think of sex as a gift that God has given to one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage for procreation, permanence, and pleasure. Procreation. God could have made human beings grow on trees like apples. He could have set it up. That's how, do, how, do we, how is the human species replicated? On trees. They grow on trees. But that's not how God has set it up. He set it up so that those who bear his image, those created in his image, have the joy of creating more image bearers. He says in the Garden of Eden, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That we are to fill the earth with the glory of God. We are to fill the earth with other image bearers that reflect the glory of God. Permanence. Permanence. The very act of sex is designed biologically, the way your body is designed. We are designed biologically to be bonded together with the person you have sex with. And so sex, one of the purposes of sex is to bond two people together in the covenant of marriage. Pleasure. You know, God is the source of human sexuality. He could have made sex feel like a root canal if he wanted to. He could have set it up that way. Uh, that'd be a very strange root canal, but he hasn't designed it that way. He has designed our bodies to experience pleasure through sex. And so it is a gift. It is a gift that God has given to one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage for procreation, permanence, and pleasure. Now, what about sexual sin? Then what is sexual sin? We're going to be talking a lot about sexual sin. What is sexual sin? Well, well, I've been reading all week, looking at Romans 1, looking at other parts of the Bible, reading commentaries to try to define, come up with my best understanding of the definition of sexual sin. And here it is. It is engaging in any form of sexual gratification outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. So this would mean that pornography is a, is a type of sexual sin. Lust in the heart is a type of sexual sin. Adultery, fornication, pedophilia, polygamy, homosexuality, all violate God's design for sex. And if our eyes are open, if we look around our world today, we will see that sexual content is everywhere. It's everywhere you look. It's on almost every TV show, on the commercials, in the movies. It's everywhere you look. And so what is the source of sexual sin? Where does it come from? Why is there such a thing as sexual sin? Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is what Paul says. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. The source of sexual sin is idolatry. This is Paul's claim that he is making in chapter 1. The source of sexual sin is idolatry. Or you could call that disordered worship. When we worship anything besides God. 
Idolatry is the source of sexual sin. And in the Bible and in, in the world, if you look at the world, you will find two different types of idolatry. Category one is pagan or religious idolatry. Uh, pagan or religious idolatry is marked by conscious worship. People who are re- worshiping idols, they know the idols that they're worshiping. They're consciously worshiping these idols. These gods, these idols have names, temples, and statues. And for thousands of years, billions of people have bowed down to idols. This is what the world has done, and billions of people today bow down. They still bow down and worship statues. Now, one of the most famous gods in history is the god Artemis, the goddess Artemis of the Ephesians. So here's a picture, the fertility goddess in Asia Minor uh, in Turkey. Uh, this, this goddess has been worshipped for, I was worshipped for so long by millions and millions and millions of people. Now, in our culture, this is not our problem for the most part. None of us here in our culture, we don't bow down to statues. We don't go to temples and actually bow down consciously worshiping little statues. We don't do that. But there is another kind of idolatry. This is category two. This is secular idolatry, and it is marked by unconscious worship. Unconscious worship. The gods or the idols that we worship do not have names do not have temples, do not have statues. We do not consciously go places and say, I am going to worship, I am going to go bow down to my God. That's not what happens. This is often marked by taking a good thing. This is when we take a good thing and we make it a God thing. We take a good thing, something that God has given to us, and we put it in the place of God in our lives. Colossians 3, 5, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about how the love of money or greed is idolatry. Loving money is idolatry. Jesus says you can serve God or money. God or money. Jesus says there are two gods, God and there is money. We can worship family. Family is a wonderful gift, but family can creep into that place in our lives where we are worshiping our family. Sports, hobbies, our careers, education, our reputation, sex, ministry. You can even make ministry an idol in your life. You can do ministry for your own glory instead of the glory of God. And we need to notice that it is not an option not to worship. If you look at verse 25, Paul says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. There is no option not to worship. Paul does not say they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and decided not to worship anything at all. All of us are worshipers. You're designed, you were designed to worship. All of us, this last week, the last seven days of our life, we all worshiped. And we all worshiped all day long. We are worshipers by design. You will worship something. And see, all idolatry is rooted in a lie. All Idolatry is rooted in the lie. The worship of God is, is rooted in the truth. It's rooted in reality. But all idolatry, whether it's pagan or secular, is rooted in a lie. Look back at verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We exchanged the glory of God for a lie. What's the result? And worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Now, what is the lie that is talked about in verse 25? Here's my best understanding. It is something created, this is the lie, that something created is more glorious, more valuable, more life-giving, and more satisfying than, than the eternal God. This is the root lie from which all idolatry springs. So when you see people bowing down to temple or bowing down to statues, worshiping something, 
worshiping money, worshiping Allah, when Hindus worship all their many gods? What is going on here? Well, there's a lie. There's a root lie. And the root lie is that there is something created. Something created is more glorious, more valuable, more life-giving, and more satisfying than the eternal creator God. Why do people bow down to Artemis of the Ephesians? Because Artemis is more, more glorious, more life-giving than the God of the Bible. This is, this is what happens in the human heart. And all of us do this. All of us are guilty of, adult, of idolatry. All of us are guilty of worshiping something besides God. This is our condition as human beings apart from the grace of God. What we do is we exchange the glory of God for idols. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter? Well, it matters for a lot of reasons, but one is that all sin flows from idolatry. Every sin that's committed. So when you, when you blow up and you get really angry and you yell at your kids or you yell at your spouse or you yell at your boss or whoever it is, you get really angry and you sin, you are worshiping. Why does that happen? It's because you're worshiping. This is all sin, all sin. When someone commits murder, what's going on? The person committing murder is worshiping. They're worshiping the wrong God. One scholar says, in every instance, the giving up to sin is the result of idolatry. The refusal to make God the center and circumference of all existence, so that in practice, the creature is exalted over the creator. Hence, all individual sins are the consequence of the failure to prize and praise God as the giver of every good thing. Our fundamental problem as human beings is that we do not worship God. We do not worship the one true God. And what Paul does in Romans chapter 1 is he's going to draw a straight line from idolatry, not to sin in general. He's going to draw a straight line from idolatry to sexual sin. He's going to make this connection for us. Now, why does he do this? Well, this is where we get to truth number two, the meaning of sexual sin. How should we think about sexual sin? We see it everywhere. We see it in our lives. We see it in our culture. It is absolutely everywhere. How should we think about sexual sin? Well, sexual sin is the acting out of idolatry. How should we think about this? Sexual sin is the acting out of idolatry. Sexual sin is worship. So when two strangers go to the bar and they end up sleeping together, when a girlfriend or a boyfriend in high school or college or whatever, they're messing around sexually, when a husband or a wife commits adultery, when someone is looking at pornography, when two men sleep together or two women sleep together, they are acting out their idolatry. They're just acting it out. It is worship. It is worship to some God besides the God of the Bible. And there's a principle behind this, and here's the principle. It's that disordered worship disorders human sexuality. Disordered worship or idolatry disorders human sexuality. And this is true of all of us. And it's important when we read Romans 1, chapter 1, we don't divide the world into the good guys and the bad guys. It's not the good guys and the bad guys. We're all the bad guys. We're all idolaters. We all, we all struggle to worship the one true God. But when we worship, when humanity worships anyone or anything besides God, it disorders human sexuality. This is the human condition. Now, why is it this way? Why does idolatry disorder human sexuality? Two reasons. First is the word glory. Glory. 
See, if we exchange the glory of God, idolatry fundamentally is exchanging the glory of God for the glory of something that is created. This is what idolatry is. We exchange the glory of God for the glory of something that is created, the glory of money or the glory of whatever it is. So if idolatry is about exchanging the glory of God for the glory of something that is created, then naturally we are going to look to the most glorious thing in creation. If we're not going to worship God in his glory, then we're going to look for the most glorious thing. We're going to worship the most glorious thing in creation. Now, what is the most glorious thing in creation? What is the most glorious thing in all creation, in the entire universe, besides God himself? What is the most glorious thing in creation? This is an easy answer. A woman. A woman. A woman is the most glorious thing in creation. That women, they are the crown of men. They are the crown of men. See, men can look at trees all day long. You can look at trees all day long. You can look at cows all day long. You can look at dudes all day long. But there, but there is nothing like the beauty of a woman. There is something that happens in the soul when you see the beauty of a woman. I was thinking about this point this week at a coffee shop. I study the Bible a lot at coffee shops, and there are two songs that came on back to back, and here are the two songs. These songs caught my attention. The first song is Missing Peace by Vance Joy. He says, because when I'm in a room with you, that missing peace is found. Oh, you know when you're by my side, darling, nothing can bring us down. Oh, you know, we've had this experience. Don't you have this experience where you're, you're not with anyone and you walk around and you feel like you're missing something? And then you see a woman and you say, there she is. Or there he is. And then you start to spend time with him and you're like, this is what I'm missing. This is what, I, this is what I've been missing in my life. And it gives you this sense of purpose and meaning and satisfaction and joy. He, goes, he says, you know, when you're by my side, darling, nothing can bring us down. We got it. This is it. This is, we've, the missing piece. Found the missing piece. The song that came on right after that, song two, is My Milkshake Brings All the Boys to the Yard. And I can't read any more of the lyrics uh, in church for obvious reasons, but there is this euphoric power. Whoa. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. And this is not a new thing. Milkshakes have been bringing boys to the yard forever. Forever and ever and ever. I mean, go all, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And do you remember the first time Adam saw Eve? Do you remember what happened? So Adam, he's naming all the animals, and then he sees Eve. And the first time he sees her, he breaks out into a spontaneous, poetic song. He just starts singing. There she is. You're a lot better than a cow and elephants I've been looking at and tigers. This one's from me. Spontaneous. Spontaneous love song. Eve was glorious. And it's a good thing that women are glorious. It's a good thing. And men have their own glory. It's a good thing that men are glorious. But there is a danger in the glory of men and women. There's a danger. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned? God called Adam and Eve to give an account. In Genesis 3, 17, this is what God says. God is talking to Adam. Remember Adam took the fruit? He took the fruit from the tree, he ate it, and the result was that sin entered the world, creation fell. I mean, that's a big deal. He ate a piece of fruit. But what was Adam's sin from God's perspective? Genesis 3.17, and he said to the man, 
because you listened to your wife. Well, implication. You listened to her instead of to me. You listened to her instead of to me. Eve was deceived. Adam rebelled. Eve was deceived. Deceived. Adam rebelled. And so we get a little insight here into what's going on. That, that Adam, he knew what God said. He knew what God had commanded him. And so he looks at Eve taking the fruit, and he knows what God says. And God says, Adam's sin was that he chose Eve over God. He listened to Eve over God. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. That Adam exchanged, he made this exchange. Instead of listening to the truth of God, he listened to his wife. And so there is a danger in the glory. There's a danger in the glory of human beings. If we do not worship God, then we are so susceptible to sexual sin. We will try to find our lives in sexual intimacy. Reason number two is loneliness. Loneliness. The promise of sexual pleasure, the promise of intimacy with another person, more than just sex, but intimacy with another person, the hope of sharing life with another person is so powerful. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden? God says it's not good for a man to be alone. Everything's good in creation. It's good. God created everything. No sin. Not good for a man to be alone. So I will make for Adam Eve. Loneliness is powerful. Being alone is powerful. Do you remember the jingle? You don't have to be lonely at farmersonly.com. Do you remember that? It's a good jingle. It probably worked. I would imagine it worked because there's this call. You don't have to be lonely. You can go meet someone. We are hardwired to connect relationally and we're designed for sex, which produces a deep vulnerability to try to find our lives, not in God, but in sexual fulfillment, in relationships with one another. And so Romans chapter one is teaching us that sexual sin is the acting out. It is the acting out of rebellion. When we don't worship God, our, our, our desires for sex will be disordered, which leads to Truth number three, the price of sexual sin. The price of sexual sin. So how should we think about sexual sin? The source is idolatry. The meaning is worship. We're acting out our idolatry in our sexual sin. On top of this, we should see that sexual sin is the wrath of God against idolatry. So when we think about sexual sin, what's going on is that it is the wrath of God against idolatry. So it's not like sexual sin is its own thing and then because of sexual sin, now God's wrath comes. That's, in one sense, that's very true. In one sense, that's true. But what is true at a more fundamental level is that sexual sin is wrath. And it's the wrath of God against idolatry. Look at Romans 1.22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. The flow of thought, verse 23, we exchanged the glory of God. Verse 24, God responds. He delivers us over to our desires. The result of fulfilling our desires is the degrading of our bodies. And this is repeated three times. This flow of thought is repeated three times. We exchange the glory of God for idols, God delivers us over, and we are degraded. 
God gives us what we want. Now, is this true of all sexual sin? Is all sexual sin wrath against idolatry? The answer is yes. This is the flow of thought again, that idolatry leads to sexual sin, which is a form of wrath that God delivers us over. It's a form of wrath. And we don't stop, so we keep going as a society. Remember, this is not just about individuals. We shouldn't think of Romans chapter one as Paul trying to describe every individual's journey in their rebellion against God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying humanity. This is the human problem. Humanity writ large. Idolatry leads to sexual sin, which is wrath. More idolatry, more of worshiping something besides God leads to more sexual sin and more homosexual sin. So what is homosexuality? If we were to think of homosexuality biblically, how do we think about it? Well, it's not just an alternative lifestyle. Homosexuality is the complete rejection of God's design for sex. It is the complete rejection of God saying, no, no, I will decide. It's up to me. You are not my God. I will do what I want. I will do what I want. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. So do you see the connection? We exchange God, the glory of God. We exchange the truth for a lie. We, ex- we exchange the immortal God for creatures. We worship someone or something besides God. The result, God gives us over to our desires. Then we fulfill our desires. And in the fulfillment of our sexual desires, we punish ourselves. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. But it doesn't stop here. Continued idolatry leads to sexual sin plus homosexual sin plus moral insanity, which is more wrath. So the more sexually deviant a society is, the more moral insanity you will see. Verse 28. And because they did not think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. So we worship something besides God, more sexual sin. We keep worshiping other things besides God, more sexual sin and homosexual sin. We keep worshiping something besides God, more sexual sin, more homosexual sin, and then eventually moral insanity. And see, if a society will not accept God, will not worship God, if a society rejects God's standard for human sexuality, then the dam is broken. The dam will be broken, and the world will be flooded with evil, which is exactly what's going on in our culture. See, sin carries with it its own punishment. 
There is no life in sin. The idea that there's life in sin is a lie. It's not true. Sin is only death. It leads to death, and it is the corruption of our souls. Now, you may be wondering, how can sin, how can sexual sin be a punishment in and of itself? Because our culture says the opposite. Our culture says, have as many sexual experiences as you can. The more, the more the better. How can sexual sin be a punishment, an expression of God's wrath? Three ways. First, sexual sin leads to a corrupt mind. That sexual sin leads to a corrupt mind. It, it, it messes. You can't just isolate sin to one part of your life. It contaminates all of us. Verse 28, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind. To a corrupt mind. I mean, this one sentence is worth many, many hours of thinking. What is a corrupt mind? It means, an, it means a warped inner world. That your, your inner life is corrupted. I, I think one of the manifestations of this is I've talked to so many men over the years who have lived sexually deviant lives and they're in their 30s or they're in their 40s and they say, Dan, um, I can't just look at a person anymore. I can't just look at a person. Everything is sexualized. So I look at another man or another woman. Even, he's like, even if I, they'll say, even if I'm not attracted to men, my mind is so warped. It's so warped that everything is sexualized. Pornhub said that in 2019, more than 5 billion, 800 million hours of porn were watched. In 2019 alone. That's equal to almost 665 centuries of content consumed in one year on just one porn site. One third of this porn that is watched is violent. It's violent. And if you believe that the secret porn habits of society does not break into the culture, you are deceived. What you do in private is going to come out of you. It's just the way God has wired us. And the more sexual sin you commit, the more porn you watch, the more sexually deviant you are, the more guilt you will have. Why do you think there's a mental health epidemic in our country? Why do you think people feel so guilty? Why is there so much shame and depression and anxiety? See, sexual sin warps and corrupts the inner person. Next, it corrupts the body. Romans 1.24, therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. I read uh, statistics this week from the CDC on STDs, and I almost couldn't keep reading. I said, I'll make a list and share some. I said, I can't even share it. It's just too depressing. And then lastly, what it does to children. What it does to children. Romans 1.32, although they know God, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. I mean, this is a description of our culture. Not only do they do them, but they have month-long celebrations for them. 
We know it's wrong, and we just keep going. A picture in my head is the picture of the sexual sin boulder, if you want to put that up. And what we do, what we've done as a society, is we have this big boulder that is heavy, and we push it uphill. And it's hard because we have to go against our minds. We have to go against our conscience. That's why alcohol and drugs are all over the place. It's because people are trying to dumb down their minds to do what ought not be done. And so we, we have to fight against our conscience and fight against what we know is right and we push the boulder up to the top of the mountain and then we get there and we just let it go. And as that boulder rolls down, you will discover that children are behind it. That children are the ones who get crushed. I mean, think about what happens with divorce in our country. And one of the primary reasons people get divorced is because of sexual deviance. A husband or a wife commits adultery, the porn habits of a husband or the porn habits of a wife, and it just destroys, it erodes the foundation. And then there's divorce, and then there are children who have to pick up the pieces, the broken pieces of their lives because mom and dad are not together. Broken families. Right now there are millions and millions of children who are slaves. They're, pro- they're being prostituted out. Millions of them. Because men want to have sex with kids. In the last 50 years, 1.1 billion babies have been killed around the world. 62 million children have been murdered in our country. And how many of those abortions have come within the relationship of one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage? Some, but it's a tiny percentage. And I could keep going, but it's too depressing. Sexual sin is obviously devastating our culture. And if you think about it for a moment, if you think about it for a moment, it just becomes more and more obvious. But we close our eyes and pretend that everything is okay. So what do we do? What do we do? Truth number four, our only way forward. What do we do? I have three application points for you. Number one, we need to be clear. We need clarity on God's standard for sex. Dear brothers and sisters, we have no reason to be ashamed of what God has to say about sex. None. It is the most life-giving position you could hold. And so if the culture, if your employer, if your friends look at you sideways, because you hold to a biblical standard on human sexuality, don't budge one inch. It is the most life-giving standard you could ever hold. Do not move from it, do not be ashamed of it. You know, sometimes people, they'll, they'll, come, at, they'll come at me a little bit, I'll have conversations with them, and I'll just ask the question, okay, if you don't agree with the Bible, the biblical standard for human sexuality, what's the standard then? I don't know. Well, what's the standard? Where's the line? I don't know. That's not a standard. You can't build a society on that. The standard is, what do I feel like right now? And that's not a standard. And then I'll ask the question, has your life really been improved by sex outside of marriage? Has your life really been improved? And I think if you think about that for a moment, it's like we have no reason, we have no reason to be ashamed. 
We, should, we ought not be obnoxious, but dear brothers and sisters, let's not be ashamed of what God says about human sexuality. It is the most loving, gracious, wonderful thing ever. Sex is not dirty. It's a glorious thing. that God, It is a gift that God has given to one man, one woman, confined of marriage, and it is life-giving. This also emphasizes the importance, my dear brothers and sisters, of having a good sex life in your marriage. You ought to work hard, husbands and wives, to have a good sex life in your marriage. Because as the society continues to move the direction it's going, a godly marriage, a man and a woman loving each other, loving Christ, loving their kids, will become brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. A testimony of the wisdom of God. So do not be ashamed of what God says. Number two, application number two. Conviction and the hope of the gospel. How do we move out into the world? Clarity on God's standard. Conviction in the hope of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those who habitually, who, nor those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And see, this, this is a statement, okay? You live in sin, you're not, you don't know Christ. That's what he's saying. And see, if we move out into the world just saying, hey, don't be gay. If that's our message, there is no hope in that. Hey, stop sleeping with your girlfriend. No hope in that. That's not our message. What's our message? Verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. See, it is the gospel that changes people's lives. What they need, what the world needs, what we need to hear is what God has done for us in Christ. The gospel teaches us how to rightly worship God. The gospel teaches us how we can be forgiven. I was thinking this week about the word that Paul used three times in Romans 1 to describe the wrath of God. God delivered them. God delivered them. We exchanged the truth. God delivered them. We exchanged the truth. God delivered them. We exchanged the truth. God delivered them. And he uses this word one more time in the book of Romans to describe how God solves our problem. And what's, what's the word that he uses? Or where does he use it? Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I love this. Because it, Paul is recognizing, communicating the truth that the way God solves our problem of idolatry, the way that God has solved our problem of sin, is not by telling us, be better, people. Hey, you need to be better. Hey, you need to do a better job. That's not what he says. The way God has solved our problem is by giving up his one and only son, that God delivered his one and only son unto death for us. So what's going on at the cross is that the Lord Jesus Christ was taking the punishment for our sin. He became legally responsible before God, and he died our death. He died in the place of sinners that we might be forgiven. I mean, that is good news. The good news is not get your life together. It's look to Christ, the one who died in your place to pay for your sins, that you might be forgiven. You know, the punishment, I mean, what do you do to a pedophile? What do you do with someone who's committed rape? What do you do? What do you do to someone who's committed adultery, someone who's a homosexual? What do you do to the person who looks at porn? 
I mean, the guilt that we have because of our sexual sin. What do you do with it? You can just push it down or you can recognize that Christ carried our guilt. He bore our shame and he bore our punishment. He, he took all the this, this sinless, spotless lamb of God, died in my place, in our place. He was delivered up by God the Father for our salvation. So what do we tell the adulterer? Come to Christ and be forgiven. What do we tell the, the person who's addicted to porn? Come to Christ and be forgiven. What do we tell the homosexual? Come to Christ and be forgiven, be reconciled, be set free from your sin. Only Christ can do that work. And so we must have that conviction in our soul. And then lastly, compassion. We need deep compassion for people. There are many people in this room right now who are struggling with sexual sin, homosexual sin and heterosexual sin. And see, we want to be the type of church. We got to make decisions about what kind of church we want to be. We want to be the type of church where we look at one another. We look at one another and we don't hide everything that's going on. Sin thrives in the darkness. We want to be the type of church where we look at each other and we say, we will stand side by side with one another to fight the good fight of faith. Let's put to death all of our sexual, sinful sexual desires. Let's put to death anything that does not honor God. And it might take five years to do that. And it might take 10 years to do that. And it might take 20 years to get victory. But I will joyfully stand with you. I'll fight with you. And we bear with one another in love. We battle together to rightly worship God. Uh, Has anyone here ever heard of uh, the Japanese art called kintsugi? Has anyone heard that here? Anyone? Okay, like three people. Okay, that's good. Okay, so kintsugi, this is what happens. It's a type of art that I think is a picture of what God is doing. Kintsugi is when you take a broken vase. So if you imagine a vase, a clay vase, it breaks. Clay pot, it breaks. And you decide not to throw it away. But you take the broken pieces and you put the broken pieces back together and, and you use gold or silver or some material that, that bonds, bonds the pieces of clay back together. And it's done in such a way that the cracks are not hidden, but they're highlighted. And see, a bowl like that becomes even more valuable. Not because it has never been broken, but because it's been broken and put back together. And I think that's what God is doing in the church. That's what he's doing. Praise God that he doesn't throw us away. We've all broken our lives. Praise God he doesn't throw us away. Praise God that he puts us back together. And he's doing that through his word, through his spirit, and through his church. And we want to be the type of people who take the gold of God's grace and help rebuild people's lives. But that requires a deep, a deep compassion, it requires deep clarity on God's sexual standards, and it requires a real hope in the gospel. And so many of you, this is your life, this is what you're doing, and you're doing a great job. But this is the type of place we wanna be, where God uses us to put our lives back together for his glory. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for the hope of the gospel, And Lord, we thank you that you carried, you carried.